Amen. All right, well, I've got a, uh, my sermon in a sentence. I really try to give you this kind of track with me as I go through. Uh, the gospel is the message, discipleship is the method, and Jesus is the Messiah, okay? And once again, the gospel is the message, discipleship is the method, Jesus is the Messiah. Sermon title, just pretty simple, repent and believe, right? Repent and believe. So if you notice, we read um, chapter 1, verse number 14 through 15. We're just going to read it again to you. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came from Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right there in verse 14, many people are just reading through the text like, oh, and after John was arrested, then Jesus began his public ministry. But you have to know, in between verse 14 and verse 13, there's a year. There is a whole year that happens in the text that Mark doesn't include. Because you have to remember, once again, that Mark is a highlight reel, right? He's not looking to focus on details. Now, Luke, Matthew, and John. John has a lot of the early Judean ministry. But for the most part, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of follow this highlight reel. We're not really going to focus on a lot of the details that happened every day. But John's gospel, he lets us know there's a lot of ministry that happens with Jesus before he begins his Galilean ministry, okay? So to really track with me, we've got three big areas, or four big areas in Jesus' life where he did ministry. You've got the early Judean ministry, you've got the early uh, Galilean ministry, you've got the later Galilean ministry, and then you've got the ministry in Jerusalem, okay? So once again, understanding when you're reading the text where Jesus is at, it really helps you see who he is talking to and what he is talking about. Because when you get into the later stages of the later Galilean ministry, when you get into early stages of Jerusalem, Jesus' focus in preaching shifts from the demonic possessions, shifts from healing and miracles, shifts from even maybe most of his parables and discourses, which are sermons, and it really transitions to what? The cross. He starts looking towards the cross. John says it like this, he set his face towards Jerusalem. So that means, guess what? Everything was ending. It was literally the last chapters of his life. And when you really think about it, much of the Gospels, more than half of them, for the most part, are devoted towards the back half, is devoted towards what? The crucifixion. Are devoted towards Jesus in the temple. Are devoted towards what? The resurrection. And so it's all building and building. So once again, I want to caution you. When you read the Bible and you're thinking, man, they just got everything they wanted. Years have passed. Decades have passed. Literally, a lot of things happen when you just turn the page in the Bible. So even those one verses, a whole year has passed. What happened when Jesus was in Judea? What happened in those early Judean ministry opportunities? John the Baptist, guess what? John going to do what John going to do, amen? Uh, he going to preach. And so what does he do? He preaches. He calls out Herod because Herod literally has his brother killed because his wife was foxy foxy. You know what I'm saying? And he marries his brother's wife. And then uh, you know her daughter is dancing before Herod. And Herod's like, I'll give you anything you want. And what does she say? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so John had been in prison, right? And so that hadn't happened yet. But do understand, all of these things in the Bible, they revolve around a lot of the text we oftentimes take for granted. So John is in prison. The guy who came talking about Jesus, the guy who came leading the way for Christ, the guy who you would think, Lord's hand is on that guy. The bro's in prison. Put that in your best life now novel, amen? What about that? All good things happen to God's people. Tell that to John, amen? Because he did exactly what God wanted him to do, and he ended up him being in prison, and it ended up costing him his head because he did everything God wanted him to do. 
And so that happens there. After John gets arrested, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. What happens before this? We know in John's gospel that Jesus interacts with the disciples. We know that he has moments with them before the initial call, you could say. He has moments with them where they they know who he is, they're aware of him. If you remember in John's gospel, he also says that when Jesus came walking by, what did John say? Behold the Lamb of God. And it says some of his disciples left and began to follow Jesus. So you had these two massive movements. You have John the Baptist, he's got disciples, and you have Jesus rising up, he has disciples. And I love what John chapter 3, verse number 30 says, which is one of my life verses. It says what? He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What was John saying? John was saying, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Guys, let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, the church down the road is not our competition. Let me remind you, our brothers and sisters around us, they are not our enemy, they are not our competition, they are our brothers, they are our sisters. We are all in a teamwork, a network churches, a network of people who believe the Bible, who believe that only Jesus saves, who believe it's not by works, it's by faith alone and grace alone, by Christ alone, amen. If we believe those common principles, then they are not our enemy, they are our teammates. So it's not a competition, it's not about, hey, let's all fight against each other. No, it's all about us pulling resources, how can we reach the gospel for Jesus? Because we must decrease, he must increase. Look what it says here. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He came preaching the gospel. Which, what is the gospel? It's amazing here that Jesus came speaking about the message, and the message was him. So literally, the messenger is the message. Jesus came saying, hey, what? Believe the gospel. He doesn't say just repent. He says, what you got to believe. Many people think getting saved is just turning away from sin. No. Well, let me promise you this. Your salvation, what you bank on being salvation, is just as important as what you repented from, in a sense. Okay? You've got to have repentance and belief. We don't believe just turning away from sin is getting saved. No, we believe turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. We don't believe in just saying, well, I'm going to turn away from sin and I'm going to go to church. I'm going to turn away from sin and I'm going to be baptized. No, we believe... You turn away from sin and you turn to Jesus. What? You've got to repent of your sins and you've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who did and was everything he said he was. He lived the perfect life. He died, a, he died our death that we deserve. He resurrected on the third day and he sits at the right hand of God. You've got to believe in the full gospel of Jesus. Because let me tell you guys, if we don't believe Genesis 1-1, we can't believe John 3-16. You can't believe it. You can't pick and choose what you want from the Bible. You can't do it. And so it says that Jesus began to preach, guess what? The kingdom of God is at hand. You better repent and you better believe. You better repent and you better believe. Isn't it amazing that's the same words John said? John said the same thing. You better repent and you better believe. Why? Because the kingdom is here, but the kingdom's not yet. The kingdom's here and the kingdom's not yet. Because here's the thing. Jesus said what? The kingdom is at hand. It's at hand. It's very, very close. It's here, but it's not here. Because many people thought when the Messiah came, guess what? He was going to destroy Rome. He was going to bring in the Masonic reign of the Messiah. He truly was going to defeat all of enemies' foes. But here's the thing they didn't understand. Israel's biggest enemy was not Rome. Israel's biggest enemy was their flesh. Israel's biggest enemy was the devil. Israel's biggest enemy was sin itself. And so while on the surface it looked like Jesus didn't do anything, let me remind you this, we are sitting here because Jesus did everything. We are sitting here today 
because of what this man did. He didn't pick up a sword. He didn't pick up a pickaxe. He didn't pick up uh, you know, stone. He didn't pick up anything like that. He didn't pick up a bow and arrow. He didn't pick up say, we're having a rebellion. No, he picked up love and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and grace and truth. And he came and he changed the entire world. Because that's what nobody expected. Nobody expected that. What do, you do, what do you do to an individual who all they want to do is love you well? What do you do to them? You kill them. Because you can't do nothing else with them, right? Because literally that's what changes people, is when we love truly like Christ has loved us. And love also is full of grace and truth, right? So the kingdom is near, but it's not yet. The best illustration I know to give you, you have to bear with me, I'm a 90s kid, amen, is the Lion King, right? Uh, because I love it so much, right? Because uh, on the way, you're coming in church this morning, Esther was in the mood, so we played Akuna Matata, Akuna Matata, uh, right? I mean, we were just jamming out, and I kid you not, the whole way, I'm thinking about it, why? Because this is just a powerful illustration to the gospel. Because when Simba's far off away, guess what? And I love, he, he, he finally is running back to the pride lands. I'm, I'm telling y'all guys, I'm telling you. And he's running back. Y'all remember the slow motion run? And he's running through the wilderness. It's like Forrest Gump in slow motion. I mean, it's just crazy. He's running across all the deserts. And I love Chris Graffiki says what to his friends? He says what? The king has returned. And here's the thing. The king hadn't returned yet, but the shift in Simba's mind had happened where guess what? He was going back. And so him, by making that decision, even though the king wasn't on the throne yet, even though he hadn't done that, guess what? The whole story had shifted. Why? Because Simba had finally decided to take his rightful place. And here's the thing with the gospel. As soon as Jesus was born, the kingdom had shifted. As soon as God invaded his own story, guess what? The whole agenda of the enemy was destroyed. Because now the enemy had lost all of his power. How do you know that, Pastor Nick? Because what does the gospel tell us? What does the gospel show us? That the demonic forces that once held a grip on people was being broken. Was being broken right before their eyes. And that's why we get into the last part of this sermon today, which we're going to get there in a minute. So he starts preaching, guess what? The kingdom is at hand. Verse number 16 in Mark, look what happens here. Uh, point number one is, of course, repent and believe. Uh, point number two, you've got to become a disciple. Look what he says here in verse number 16. Passing along the, sea of along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going in a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the, and the, with the hired servants, and they followed him. So isn't it crazy that John and Andrew, I mean, that Peter and Andrew are brothers, but nobody remembers Andrew, right? Nobody remembers Andrew. Like, you don't get to the first church, everybody's like, yay, yay, Andrew. No, it's all about Peter, right? But at the end of the day, thanks once again to other gospel accounts, we know that without Andrew, there is no Peter. Why? Because Andrew is one of John's disciples, and when Andrew gets introduced to Jesus, it says he runs and tells his brother, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. And it says that, guess what? When Peter's brought unto Jesus, Jesus gives him a new name, which is what? He takes him from Simon and changes his name to Peter, which means small rock. And he does all this to show Peter that right now you're a small thing, but over the course of your life, I'm going to turn you into a massive, big pillar in the church. You're not going to be the cornerstone, because the cornerstone's already taken, amen? Jesus is the cornerstone. But he says what? He says, I'm going to turn you in from a small pebble to a big, mighty rock. 
And it's not going to be how you think. Why? Because the only thing that makes the rocks bigger is pressure and time, baby. Amen? Pressure and time. And so think about this right here, that he stops by them. He says, follow me. I love it. It says, immediately they left their nets. Immediately they changed their... In- they didn't say, hey, Jesus, what's your five-year plan? Hey, Jesus, what's your 10-year plan? Jesus, I got a family. We know that Peter had a family because he has a mother-in-law. Amen. Now, most of the other disciples, Andrew, uh, probably James, and all the other ones that are younger, probably the oldest of the bunch is probably Peter and John. But all the other ones, believe it or not, they were estimated by most historians to be teenagers. Isn't that crazy? That Peter and John were probably older. And when I say older, I mean probably around 20 years of age. But most of the other ones were between probably 13 and 20. Very, very young teenage boys. And how do you know that? Because you pay attention to the text. They just don't get it, amen? They just don't get it. And based on other information in the text, we can kind of glean that they were young. Why? Because the only person responsible for paying the temple tax is Peter. And so that probably tells you he's probably old enough to pay taxes. The other ones were not old enough to pay taxes in the temple tax. So once again, by understanding one thing in Scripture, you can kind of put things together. Hey, they were probably younger. Probably younger men. And this is probably why Jesus refers to them as what? Children. Over and over again, he calls them children. You think about it, you tell a grown man, like I tell Kenneth, you child, you, he's going to get offensive. He's like, I ain't no child, I'm a senior, right? Uh, I got this gray hair of glory, amen. Have you met Jake, Kenneth? Have you met Jake? Uh, and so really understand that all the while, they were younger men. They left their father and they left their fishing companies. Guys, this was the Bubba Gump shrimp operation, amen. I mean, they had all kinds of jennies. They had Jenny 1, Jenny 2, Jenny 3. I mean, they were slaying the fish up on the Sea of Galilee. Very successful business, and they walked away from it. They walked away from it all. Why? Because if the Messiah beckons you to follow, you don't ask questions, you just do it. You just start following him. Absolute obedience. Absolute obedience to the point where, guess what? All of these men would die horrific deaths. Peter gets crucified upside down by church history. We know that before he was crucified, he argued with them and says, no, I don't want to die in the same manner as my Lord. Please do it upside down because I don't want to bring dishonor to him. And so they literally crucified him upside down, church history tells us. Andrew gets crucified as well. James, you know about James. James was the first martyr in the book of Acts. One of the first martyrs, right? And so you really understand that these men died horrible deaths except for John. John dies of old age. More than likely, he probably died around Ephesus. And in that time period before then, you might be thinking, he had an easy life. Guys, they tried to boil him alive, but he wouldn't die. I don't know about you, when's out in the latest brochure for assisted living? Come, we'll boil you, see if till you die. I mean, nobody does that, right? And so they tried to boil him alive. He would not die. So what did they do? They stuck him on Patmos to work in a miner's colony. But guess what? Jesus came and gives him a revelation, right? He writes the book of Revelation. A book of Revelation. The churches rise up and start loving their neighbor like crazy. And Rome's like, where'd this come from? It was John. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, literally, it's just crazy. They couldn't stop him. They couldn't stop this guy. But he dies of old age. The rest of the eight, you might be thinking, well, they had great lives, probably sipping pina coladas. They didn't. They died horrible deaths. Horrible deaths. Many of them were pulled apart by lions. 
Some of them were pulled apart by horses and chariots where they would take their arms and tie one arm to one chariot, another arm to another chariot, and a leg and a leg, and they would just rip them apart. See, the sad reality of it is, of all the things we have forgotten about our faith, is that suffering is almost very closely attached to obedience. And we have forgotten that. But these men did not forget. So why would they do that? Why would they allow their lives to be wrecked by the gospel? Because when you see a man walk out of the grave, you'll do anything for him. Because they understood no matter what they do to my body, they cannot touch my soul. They can hurt me, they can imprison me, they can cut my arm off, they can cut my leg off, but at the end of the day, they cannot take from me what they never owned because Jesus is the keeper of my life. And they understood this. They were willing to die because they had saw something that death could not take away from them. Think about that. Death takes everything away from us. It takes away time. It takes away all of our efforts. Your 401k is going to die with you unless probably you pass down your children and they're going to fight over it. Amen. Uh, you know, all the nice clothes you have, the moths are going to get to, but your soul that Christ has bought with his precious blood cannot be touched by anyone because he is the strongest one who holds it. Oh, what security that is for a believer. I love this. He calls them, and he tells them what? I'm going to make you fishers of men. I love that. He doesn't say you're going to be. He says what? I'm going to make you. I'm going to transform you over time to become the men who I want you to become. And so the invitation I love here is two words. It's just the same two words in Scripture all of the time. With Peter and Andrew, it was the same words. With James and John, it was the same words. Two powerful words that we really need to understand as a church is what? Follow me. Follow me. He doesn't say, follow the church. I love this. He doesn't say, follow the Torah. He doesn't say, follow the synagogue. He doesn't say, follow the Pharisees. No, he makes it personal. He says, what? Follow me. Follow me. We used to sing a Baptist hymn, what? Footprints of Jesus. They make the pathway glow, right? We used to talk about following so close to the Lord, we would literally see his footprints. That we would be following him that closely. And to think about the gravity of this, that these men, their job was to what? Be with him. Just to be with him. Just to be as close to him as they possibly could because guess what? It's in our closeness to Jesus. It's in our closeness to the Lord. It's in our closeness to daily walking with the Prince of Peace that guess what? We become more like him. It's in that following him that we become more like the version we are supposed to be, which God intended us to be in the first place, which is more like His Son. It's in the following. It's not in the setting, it's in the following. It's in the closeness, it's in the, literally, it's in that first encounter into that day up forward. Guess what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I love that. Once again, old hymn again, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, guess what? I still will follow. I still will follow. Because Jesus changed their lives. You know what I love about this? Jesus' method wasn't flashy. It wasn't leading the biggest conference. He wasn't like, hey everybody, we're going to put together a big outreach campaign. We're all going to gather here, hundreds of thousands of people. No, Jesus' method was not the flashiest method, but it was the most important method. It was discipleship. It was the slow, tedious task of spending time with people 
hearing God's Word and discussing it in a small group of individuals and encouraging one another to share their faith and encouraging and equipping them to do ministry that literally changed the world. It literally flipped the world upside down is what some of the early, early attackers of the church said, that these men have flipped the world upside down. Because I love even what it says in the book of Acts when it came to uh, Peter and John. They get uh, attacked by the religious people in the uh, city of Jerusalem. And I love what it says. It says they noticed that these men had been with Jesus. That was a big slam. They had been with Jesus. Oh, that all of our graves will read the same thing. That we had been with Jesus. That we had spent time with the Lord. You want, to be better, you want to become a better father? Spend time with the Father. You want to become a better husband? Spend time with the truly best vine dresser, with the Prince of Peace, with Jesus himself. You want to become a better mother? Spend time with Jesus. You want to become a better employee? Spend time with Jesus. Guys, Jesus is the one thing that changes everything in our lives. He's the one individual, one person, right, that changes everything in our lives. We have to spend time with Jesus said they spent time with him to be with him, to do ministry with him. They left their families, left their occupations. But here is the big, big issue in our day and age. Everybody wants to be Peter, but nobody wants to be Andrew. What do I mean by that? Everybody wants to be Peter, nobody wants to be Andrew. Everybody wants the best seats, everybody wants the leadership, everybody wants the flashy, flashy, big, big name. They want all the best things in the world, but at the end of the day, we have to remember, it is the Andrews of the world. It is the people who go unnamed. It is the people who truly, truly made an impact in our lives, in your lives, that we forget sometimes that made the biggest impact. It is the slow, slow, faithful walk of obedience that truly, truly brings the kingdom of God in power. Not the big flash of moments, not the big ministry opportunities. Not those moments you think, my whole life has came down to this. No, it's about faithfulness, ladies and gentlemen. It's about faithfulness your entire life. It's about being that Andrew who brings people to the Lord and, let, and you see what the Lord does through them. Because let me tell you what I know about leadership. Great leaders are people who did not want that privilege, but it was bestowed upon them because others saw they were worthy when they thought themselves not to be worthy. It's those moments that make great leaders. It wasn't that, you know, we don't talk about the great leaders in history, Lincoln or Winston Churchill. We don't talk about those great men. It's only because the trials during their time period shoved them into the spotlight when they were just trying to be good leaders privately. But guess what? They were great leaders privately, therefore the God made them great leaders publicly. Because let me remind you that it is what you do behind closed doors that's way more important than what you do in these church, door, church doors. It is who you are Monday through Saturday that's far more important than who you are on the Lord's Day. Is are you Andrew or are you Peter? You're thinking, I want people to recognize me. Brother, that's not the way. You're thinking, well, I've got to have people's praise. Sister, that's not the way. My, one of my mentors in life, uh, Adam Brown, used to say, if you have, <laughs> he used to always say that if, you have to act like the clown. Sooner or later, you're going to have a circus. Just to get their attention. If you have to act like a clown, sooner or later, you're going to have to have a circus. Why? Because our aim is not to be people pleasers. Our aim is to be Jesus pleasers. And what pleases the Lord, it's the slow, 
faithfulness of obedience. Slow path. You know why, it's, you know why you're not breaking out in revival? You don't want to do that. You're thinking, that's messy. That takes forever. That takes a long time. He's a crockpot God, guys. He ain't a microwave God, right? He's crockpotter. It's summertime. I mean, it's wintertime, baby, coming up. You know what I mean? That means mama's going to put some good in that crockpot. Make sure you get a crockpot liner, amen. Thank God for them. Common grace for all, amen. Put that crockpot liner in that bad boy. Set it on low. Put the top on it. Don't watch, don't watch This Is Us, amen. Uh, and then leave. You leave. You come home. The house is filled with the aroma. You open the door and you know, guess what? It's been simmering all day long. Eight to ten hours of that, of that stew or beef, whatever it is, just saturating in the flavor. And I promise you, there's not a person on the planet who'd say, I'd rather have the, uh, the mac and cheese in the microwave. I'd rather have the TV dinner. You remember those old TV dinners with the, with the penguin? They still got those, amen? You remember them always? You pap them in, and they come out too hot, it burn your hands. It was terrible. The meat was like, not meat. If you didn't eat it fast enough, it'd crawl off the table. Nobody, not a person on the planet would say, I have that, instead of having that crock pot. But yet, you think about our marriages, we'd rather have the microwave. You think about our finances, we'd rather have the microwave. Think about our kids, we'd rather have the microwave. What do I mean by that? We, instead of taking the slow, tedious time of loving people well, that's messy, it's hard, it's the hardest thing you will ever do, we would rather substitute by paying somebody else to do it. Instead of us all doing ministry, well, Pastor Nick gets paid to do that. Instead of us all making disciples, well, no, that's a discipleship group. That's not me. I'm not called to do that. When I want to remind you, you're called to be a disciple. You don't get an option to opt out. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. You either are a Christian and a disciple, or you're not a Christian. Let me say it to you like that. We're not a Christian. Why? Because everyone Jesus saves, Jesus changes, and Jesus calls us to be a disciple maker. Every person. No man, woman, boy, or girl gets a pass. Well, I'm not called to that. Let me remind you, we're all called to ministry. We all might be called to different ministries, but we're all called to ministry. You know why I know you're called to ministry? You've got a job. God's called you to be his ambassador in that workplace. God's called you to be your ambassador in your home. I mean, God's ambassador in your home. God's called you to be a great, godly mom and dad of those precious boys and girls. God's called you to that. No higher calling, if you just ask me, than that. One of those. All right, so now you might be thinking, well, what if I repent and believe? What if I become a disciple? Pastor Nick, I want to know that God's going to show out in my life. I promise you he will. I promise you that if you truly do repent and believe the gospel, I promise you that if you become a disciple of Jesus, you'll see the hand of God in your life. Now, I'm not saying you're going to see miracles. I'm not saying you're going to be financially blessed. He might do it. Who knows? But you will see God's hand. You'll see God's hand in the small ways and in the big ways. You know how I know I'm saved? You know how I have assurance that I'm saved and going to heaven? Not only because I remember the moment, not because I have the daily walk with the Lord, but you know how? When I pray, God listens. Like that's, I'm talking about that powerful of a connection, church. I love the Lord. And I tell you, I prayed this week. I was praying this week. I, I was, I'm, I'm really being passionate right now about sharing my faith. I'm really trying to be more encouraged in being an evangelist and apologist. And I was praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to impact somebody with the gospel. Give me an opportunity. And you know what's crazy? God brings them to you. 
You ain't got to do nothing. God will bring them to you. I was sitting literally at one of the, I was sitting at the high school here in the area. And I was sitting there reading my book. And sure enough, a student sits across from me. And she was like, hey, do you care if I sit here? And I said, I don't mind. And I was reading a book. And she says, what book are you reading? I showed her the cover. She says, oh, that looks interesting. She said, what's it about? I said, it's about God. She says, what do you think about God? Thank you, Lord. Best kind of fishing in the world when the fish jump in the boat, amen. How about you? If it's amazing car, if we could eat them, it'd be great. So if I go on bass fishing, the bass just jump in. Be crazy. Because that's what I'm talking about. The hand of the Lord in your life is those kind of moments. We're well, praying for God's glory. You're praying for God to give you an opportunity to do something for his kingdom and his glory. And he provides it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that are crazy. I'm talking about where literally you're, you're worried, finances are tight. You're thinking, I don't know if I can afford a tithe. I don't know if I can. Like, I got this big bill. And all of a sudden, you get your big hospital bill. And all of a sudden, you get, you, for the first time ever, you get a tax return. And it covers it all. Guys, that's what I'm talking about. Things like that, the happier you're thinking, wow, glory to God. Because if, if I took the time just today to tell you how much God's been in my life, we wouldn't have time. Because I've seen the Lord's hand work mightily in my life. I'm still praying for hair. <laughs> Holding out, amen. But maybe one day. But I'm telling you, I've seen God's hand work in my life. And it's not because I'm good, but because He's good. It's not because I checked off a box and He was like, boom, boom, boom. No, that's not the way the Lord works. But I do know this is how the Lord works. If I submit myself to His will... If I'm walking in obedience, if I truly want to bring honor and glory to Him, then the Lord will provide opportunities for me to bring honor and glory to Him. But sometimes, church, the path to honor and glory to the Lord is suffering. It's when the Lord strips something away from you, and the rest of the world is thinking you should curse God and die. But you know what you do? You say, God is good. God is so good to me. That brings the Lord glory. Sometimes more than a testimony does. Sometimes more than that. All right, let's see the Lord's power. I'm, I'm really excited about this because I'm telling you it's so good. Uh, verse 21, and they went to Capernaum. So once again, we're moving from Galilee to Capernaum. Capernaum's a bigger city, bigger area, massive fishing industry, big, big city back in these days, okay, Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So remember, this is Saturday for the Jew, the seventh day of the week. This is the Sabbath, which means, guess what? From 6 p.m. on Sunday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, they consider that to be the Sabbath, okay? That's a 24-hour window. If you remember, on Good Friday, they had to take Jesus down before what? The Sabbath started. That's Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. is Sabbath, okay? That's a 24-hour period where the Jews are supposed to rest and to take honor and glory, praise to the Father, right? So look at this. And they were, he went to the synagogue and he was teaching. So Jesus was teaching there. Synagogues were pretty numerous, okay? So remember, look at me, you've got to remember this. There's only one temple in Jerusalem, only one temple in Israel. It's in Jerusalem, right? This is the big, big temple, big T, right? Big temple where they had all kinds of gold, all kinds of courts, like massive, big building on a huge, big hill in Jerusalem. You follow me? That's where Jesus goes at his last part of his ministry. The other times when he's in the synagogues, these are little synagogues around the temple that are in different towns and villages so that the Jewish men and women could gather and worship the Lord. If there were 10 or so, most historians say 10 or so Jewish men who were gathered, then they considered it to be a synagogue. And they would gather and they would have uh, reading of the Torah. They would do the normal things that they would do in those time periods, worshiping Yahweh. Okay, follow me? 
Really important to understand that. So he was teaching in the synagogue, and they were astonished at his teachings. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. So here's the big deal. Jesus is traveling through, and they know kind of who he is. And so they invite him, hey, do you have a word from the Lord? Jesus, do you, Jesus, uh, do you have a, a sermon you'd like to give us? And usually, whenever a rabbi was invited to speak in the synagogue, stay with me here, they would oftentimes pull back on one of the older rabbis. They would pull back on one of the older teachings, and they would take it and present it to the people and say, you remember when rabbi so-and-so said this? You remember when scribe so-and-so said this? The amazing thing about Jesus, pay attention here, the amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't pull on one of the old rabbi scrolls. He doesn't pull back on one of the old teachings. He comes forth with a new teaching. He comes forth and he expounds on Scripture, not based on somebody else's opinion, but based on his own opinion. Why? Because when the Son of God does, it ain't plagiarism. Amen? Because he literally is the one who wrote the book. He's literally the one that wrote the book. And so he literally starts expounding on the Torah, and their minds are blown. They're like, what? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, he, their minds are blown, and they are astonished. Why? Because he doesn't teach like the scribes. The scribes, you can almost say they were like, you know, uh, Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, they were just, and then here comes Jesus. Bam! Color, baby. Amen. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, he was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He was, he was just teaching. Crazy teaching. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, everybody remembers that when you got in high school, there was that one teacher who they taught you in such a, such a personal way that it blew your mind. It literally blew your mind. Like Kenneth's teacher, they said, look, take your hammer, hold it like this, and hit the, hit the, hit the stone, and it'll make a mark. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it was cra it's crazy when somebody takes an old thing and shows you a new way, and you see everything old different than you did before. It's crazy. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes, he's teaching and he teaches them as one who has authority. And immediately, there was in their synagogue. Look what happens here. So Mark drops a detail here that's very, very powerful that I promise you, many of you probably just, whoop, uh, I didn't do the head thing, amen. Um, just read quickly, that's what I meant to say. And immediately they were in, that, there was in their synagogue. Look what happens here. He attaches, he says, immediately in their synagogue. So it's not his synagogue, but it's their synagogue. See how powerful that is? Just by taking his words in a certain order, he's really showing you that, guess what? That God probably hadn't been honored in this place in a long time. Because it wasn't Yahweh's synagogue. It wasn't Jesus' synagogue. It wasn't the Spirit's synagogue. Whose synagogue was it? It was their synagogue. Let me promise you this, ladies and gentlemen. There are a lot of churches who've got church on the sign, but it ain't God's church. It's not God's money. It's not God's people. It's not God's building. It's their money, their people, their building, and God can't have any of it. So they say. How foolish it is to say God can't have something. Very, very foolish. It's almost like your toddler's got a death grip on something. You know they about to break every little piggy, amen. Because you're going to get what's there because they're not strong enough to withhold you. Give it here. And, you, and they've got something in their mouth, spit it out. You grab their cheeks. And then maybe the real story, mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? But more than anything, they can't withstand you because you're bigger and mightier than them. You think about this right here. It says, in immediately in their midst, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So whenever Mark says an unclean spirit, he says this kind of with a Jewish hint to it. I don't, like once again, I, I don't want you to get confused here and think something that's not being said in the text, so I want to explain that to you. So when he says unclean spirit, this is a demoniac possession, okay? This is a demon possession. Now, I know living in our Western culture, you hear demon possession, and you're thinking about, uh, you know, a horror film during Halloween. You're thinking about all these things. Let me promise you, look right at me here. Look right at me. I want you to get this. Demon possessions are real. They are not make-believe. They're not just on at the movie theaters. I promise you, they are not as expressive as this is in the text, but I promise you, spiritual warfare is very much real in a thing. Very much real in a thing. So demon possession is very, very real. This is why, believe it or not, I personally do not give money to those films. Do not, I do not watch those films. Why? Because I'm fully aware that they're not just movies. They are real. They are legit. This man is a demoniac. He has demons living inside of him. And they, look what he says here. How do I know it's plural? It says what? What do you have to do with us? Us is plurality, right? He doesn't say what do you have to do with me. He says what? What do you have to do with us? plurality there. There's multiple demons at work here. And what do they say? We know who you are. We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. He says that tagline there. And once again, we're reading the text. We don't think nothing about it. But in ancient cultures, when you knew somebody's true name, this is pretty powerful. Some of y'all are getting references like I know of. When you say somebody's true name, you had power over The spirits believed that when you said somebody's true name, you had power over them. The demon here... He knows who Jesus is. Can you look, 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 look at this? The whole community is surrounding Jesus, and they don't know who he is. Peter and Andrew are following Jesus, and they don't know who he is really. James and John, they don't know who he really is. But isn't it amazing to see that the very demons of hell, they know exactly who this man is. The demons of hell are some of the first people in Scripture, first beings in Scripture, not people, I should say, first beings in Scripture to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Isn't that powerful, church? That all of the people missed it, but the demons, they knew. Why is this such a big deal? Because it goes back to what I told you. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus shows up on the scenes and this demoniac, this demon-possessed individual, has been coming to that synagogue for years and years and years. And guess what? He's been under the radar. Nobody's known about it. Nobody had known he had demon possession going on. And yet when Jesus shows up, the very demon of hell himself is being pulled out of this man and acknowledges Jesus for who he is. Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God. He knows exactly who Jesus is. Have you came to destroy us? So look how powerful is this, church. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the enemy. And the enemy is not Rome. The enemy is the prince of the power of the air. The enemy is the devil himself. The enemy is the demonic forces. Look what Jesus says. Jesus rebukes him. So that word there, be silent, I promise you, it's a very strong be silent. It's a shut up. That's what it is. Literally, it means to shut up. It means shut up. It says he looks at him and says, shut up and come out of him. He commands the demon. He didn't ask the demon. 
See, some of us, we, we get us really confused with spiritual warfare. You think it's white on one side and it's dark on one side. It's the Jedi's and the Sith. Uh, like you start thinking in your head, like it's God and the devil and they're fighting. I promise you, it's just God, ladies and gentlemen. It's just God. Because the demon has to obey. Because this is the Son of God talking. If you don't believe that, you forget what happened to Job. The devil has to come before the Lord and ask for permission. Can I do this? He has to ask for permission before the God of the universe. Why? Because God reigns and God rules. God reigns and he rules. Look what he says here. It says that he commands him to come out of him. But what does the demon do? The demon does what he's always been doing. He throws him into convulsion. He cries out with a loud voice, and he comes out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? I don't know about you, but you talk about revival breaking out. People start falling in the floor, convulsing. Guess what? The demon, wham, flies out of the man. They start talking. Man, he got some power. He's got the power. Right, I mean, they start saying like all kinds of stuff. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Look what happens here. Jesus begins his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples get called to be a part of this ministry, and as soon as they start following Jesus, they start seeing the miraculous. What do I mean by the miraculous? They start seeing the power of darkness being pushed back. Why? Because the light of the world has came. And the very demons of hell themselves cannot bear to be in the presence of him. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes him, pulls him out of the man, and the man once again, think about this, church. For the first time in a long time, he was going to go to bed that night and not hear voices. For the first time in a long time, he was going to be able to worship God with his family. For the first time in a long time, the things he'd been struggling with for years and years and years were gone. Because some of y'all don't understand this, but when Jesus says he came to bring freedom... That freedom means, guess what? He came to break the chains of the demonic influences. He came to break the camp of the enemy. He came to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. Because let me remind you of this. My, 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 one of my professors, he preached about this a couple months ago, and it was a couple days ago, and it was so, I, I was able to watch the sermon. It was so, so good. The people in our culture, look at me, look at me. If you don't, you don't pay attention to me. The people in our culture, the people in the news, even the people of maybe some even religious parties you, you disagree with and you're thinking, they're our enemy, you know, I hate them. Let me remind you, if they are flesh and blood, they are not our enemy. Look at me, look at me. They are not your enemy. Those people with those radical agendas, you're thinking, they're doing all kinds of, they're ruining our country. They're not our enemy. But you know what they are? They are held captive by our enemy. They're held captive by our enemy. You might be like, that's a little extreme. I was held captive by our enemy, and so were you. Why? Because Jesus came and he brought freedom to us. He broke the chains of sin, death, hell, and the grave. He rebuked the demons of hell and all of hell itself and said, this one's mine. Because he liberated us. From the power of that influence, he liberated us from the, that camp. He brought us out with a strong and mighty hand. Because you know what's powerful here? That phrase, Holy One of God, that arrangement of the letters there, that arrangement of the term, the only other time in Scripture you see that phrase, and that kind of similar phrase, is Samson. 
Samson is the only one who kind of has that kind of powerful presence, the Holy One of God, you could say. And you know what's crazy about Jesus and Samson? Samson's got Christ by probably 200 pounds. You know, Samson, like taking a Bible, bro's benching like 400, squatting 660, you know, deadlifting at least 1,000. Bro's jacked. How about you? He went there with a jawbone of a donkey, a whooping and a whopping, amen. God took a lion and ripped it in half. That's Samson, right? But even though Samson was strong, he was weak. Why? Because he gets lured in by Delilah. This is what happens. Read your Bible. Literally, this is what happens. And so he proved he was actually a weak man with a strong man's body. Here Jesus is. And he is called, guess what, the mighty one of God. Because he might look physically weak, but spiritually he is the strongest force that's ever invaded reality. And he has came. And this is what you, I want you to get this, church. This is what he means when he tells a parable about a strong man. How when a strong man comes into a house and he conquers all the foes, that nobody can take that house back unless he defeats the strong man. Jesus is the strong man who has invaded our lives and he keeps the enemy at bay. Why? Because he's the strongest individual in all of the universe. How powerful is that? That Christ came to bring freedom. Well, Pastor Nick, I I don't know about all this stuff. I'm telling you, the people you see, even the people you vastly disagree with, they're people to be loved. People to be cared for. That student this week I was telling you about who I got to share the gospel with and talk to her about, guess what? She openly was talking to me and she openly asked me, she said, what does the Bible have to say about the LGBTQ community? She just asked me straight up. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, and so she was telling me about some things. I was telling her about some things. And sure enough, she ended up telling me, she was like, well, I want you, you know, I'm, I'm a member of that community. She kind of expressed herself in that way. I wouldn't put a label on She said that herself. And what's crazy is though, church, she didn't get mad at me. She didn't slam down her laptop. She didn't throw things at me. You know what she, our whole conversation, she said, this is really weird. She's like, you just, you're not like I normally run into Christians. You're not the person I normally talk to when I talk about faith because you're not acting like normal people have in the past. Normal people have said like mean things towards me, have hurt me, and tried to, even some people try to get violent with me. This is here in our county. I'm not lying to you, church. Here in our county. But she had never encountered somebody who cared about her soul more than they cared about her preferences or political stance. She had never met somebody who really looked at her and treated her like an individual. And we have to remember, guys, the way to truly, truly fixing some of these massive issues in our culture is not by you taking your fist and punching somebody in the mouth. It's not by you being mean and hurtful with your words. It's by treating people like they're image bearers of God is loving people well, to ask questions and hear their concerns. Now, that's a, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we celebrate those individuals. I'm not saying I'm going to wear a certain T-shirt, I'm going to vote a certain party. No, I'm not saying any of those things, but I am saying we can love individuals without celebrating individuals. We can love them without condoning what they're doing. We can love and support them without loving and support them the way you think we should. Because you have to draw a line in the sand and say, guess what, I, I have to do what the Lord wants me to do. And that gets you in a tight spot. Gets you in a really tight spot, but that's the way of Christ. You don't believe me? That's how Jesus did things. Woman at the well. She's out there getting water. He says, where's your husband? 
She says, uh, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had five. Who does that? But Jesus does that. Why? Because he doesn't say words in an attacking way. He says things in a calm and loving way. You know what she did? The Bible says in John chapter 4, it says she left there and went to the village. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What? Who does that? And then the disciples, you know how I know disciples were kids? Hey, Jesus, we got food. I'm already eating. Did somebody bring him food? Somebody bring him food? Jesus, what food you got? You got Chick-fil-A? They're confused. They have no idea what he's doing. He says, what, I've come to eat the Father's meat. Come eat the Father's meal. I've come to truly, truly, this is my ministry. Can interact with people. Because Jesus, what you're going to see, church, as we get into this, Jesus constantly, constantly in the Bible, constantly his entire earthly ministry went after the social outcast. Went after the one who nobody else wanted to talk to and he talked to them. Went after the one who everybody else was mad at and angry at and brought them near to him and he cared and loved them well. I'm telling you, that's our God. Because what does the Bible say? He leaves the 99. And he goes after the one. You know how I know he always gets the one he goes after? I am one of them. And so are you.